There is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. We heard the students sing, Soon It Will Be Done, with Troubles and Trials. And I remember being in a high school choir myself, and we loved that song because, to us, Troubles and Trials was just having to go to school. Um, we didn't realize that there would be a few more things after that. <clears throat> I wonder if you've learned to accept the will of God. One of the great principles that Amy Carmichael taught me through her writings was, in acceptance lieth peace. In acceptance lieth peace. And that has been a great watchword in my own life, in times of great difficulty, when it was extremely difficult to suppose that God could have possibly had anything to do with the troubles and trials. But I do believe that one's readiness to do the will of God depends very much on one's home life as a child. If the child is taught early to trust and obey, he's not going to have nearly as much difficulty in learning to trust and obey God. But of course we're not excused. If we didn't have that kind of a background, it's just going to be more difficult to learn, but this is, these are lessons which we all have to learn sooner or later. Let me just read you a bit of Paul's troubles and trials. He said, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, I have been constantly on the move, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. You think you got troubles? It's interesting to me that that list is in 2 Corinthians 7, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 11, but the very next chapter speaks of another trial of a totally different kind. Paul was given a thorn something which needled him and which he prayed three times that God would remove. God's answer to that prayer was no. You and I often have to accept the will of God in the form of a no. Just as you good mothers and fathers have to say no to your children, and the children are very likely to look up at you and say, you never let me have anything. <laughs> For example, the child wants two ice cream cones just shortly before supper, and a wise father or mother will say, no, you never let me have anything. And that's really the way we respond to God sometimes when his answer is no. But just think of what you and I would have been deprived of 
if God had said yes to St. Paul's earnest petition for the removal of that thorn, St. Paul learned a tremendous lesson. We, most of us would think of him as a very great spiritual giant. We wouldn't think that he needed a little thing like a thorn in order to learn anything new in the way of spiritual things. But he was fallible just like the rest of us. And you remember God's reply, don't you? I'll read the part from 2 Corinthians 12. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, which he had just talked about in the first few verses, this strange experience of being caught up into the third heaven. So strange that he begins referring to himself in the third person, and then he sort of gets carried away and lets us know that it really wasn't somebody else. It was he that had this strange experience. And when you and I are vouchsafed some very special spiritual experience, it's a great temptation, isn't it, to share that, to broadcast it to the whole world. And it may not always be God's will that we do that. We don't always get any kind of recognition because of surpassingly great revelations. So the Apostle Paul says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I'd like you to think about the fact that it was called a messenger of Satan, but it was given to him for what reason? To prevent him from becoming absurdly conceited. Now, who cares whether the Apostle Paul becomes absurdly conceited? Is it God or Satan? Well, you know, Satan would be jubilant if he succeeded in causing Paul to become conceited. So it was God who gave him the thorn. And yet it also says it was a messenger of Satan. So here we have, in one verse, the great polarity between the will of God and man's understanding, the work of Satan and the work of God. We all know, as we look back over our spiritual experience, that we've been baffled at times. What could God possibly have had to do with this thing which has happened? Why does God allow Satan to trouble me like this? So Paul did just what you and I would do. He pleaded three times that the Lord would take away this thorn that was such a small thing compared to the shipwrecks and the floggings and the imprisonment and all those, those other things in chapter 11. But God said, my grace is all you need. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, St. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. May I see the hands of you who delight in weaknesses? It doesn't come naturally to any of us, and it didn't come naturally to Paul. 
But he learned the lesson. He said, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Acceptance of the will of God is a continual lesson for all of us. You get stuck in a traffic jam and you have a very important appointment somewhere and you begin to wonder how in the world did this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? He knows how important it is for me to get to that meeting. And there you are. Well, one of the first lessons that we need to learn as Christians is a God who is in charge. You note takers, number one, a God who is in charge. He's got the whole world where? In his hands. And he's got you and me, brother and sister, in his hands. He doesn't let go. He doesn't allow his attention to lapse. He's not preoccupied with somebody else's trouble so that he can't take care of mine. And God is in charge, according to Romans 8.28, of everything that happens. It says in that verse, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. A pattern for good to them that love God. To them that are called according to his purpose. And in the very next verse, he tells us what his purpose is. That we might be conformed to the image of his Son. What does it take to conform Elizabeth Elliot or any of you into the image of Christ? Well, for one thing, it takes suffering. That's why I wrote this book. Not that it isn't mentioned in the scriptures. I think it's mentioned at least 80 times in the New Testament alone. Suffering is necessary. Suffering is assigned. We're tempted sometimes to look at somebody else's sufferings and think, well, I think I could handle that better than she's doing. You don't know what's going on in that person's mind. And you're not very happy with what God is, is doing in your life. Why didn't he give me this kind of suffering, which I'm sure I could have handled? Well, God is totally wise, isn't he? And if he wants to conform you and me to the image of his son, he is going to have to put us through the paces. And you know, suffering and adversity has never made a saint out of anybody. You can become the most bitter, ungetalongwithable person in the world if you have to go through suffering. Or, by receiving it as Paul did, and as so many others in Scripture did, we can be shaped to the image of Christ. It is not the event that sanctifies us. It is our response. Everything depends on our response. I told you this morning about the kind of a home in which I grew up. And I thank God that I had to learn the lesson of teachability. Because my parents were dead serious about what they said. And the things that they taught us. And we had to be teachable. I had to learn a certain measure of humility, which I'm still learning. But as a child, I think I was very open and very trusting of my parents, and they didn't let us down. But I went away to boarding school when I was 14 years old, and the headmistress of that school was a very redoubtable woman. 
She was probably an inch or two taller than I am and weighed probably 80 pounds more than I do. And when she came into a room, it was like a galleon in full sail. <laughs> and that woman was a no-nonsense kind of person, and she could read us like a book. And she picked me out within ten, two weeks after my arrival in that school as being very shy. And she called me into the office, and she and her husband, who was the president of the school, she was the headmistress, they tore strips off of me for about two hours, starting with the fact that I was shy. Well, I didn't see there was anything really bad about being shy. I had to admit it was true. I was very shy, because for one thing, I was much taller than I, I was supposed to be in my generation. There are a lot more tall women now than there seemed to have been then. But when I was in the eighth grade, of course, all the boys were about up to here on me. And I was the one that always had to erase the top of the blackboard and pull down the shades and sit at the back of the room. So I was shy. And Mrs. DeBose pointed her bony finger at me, and she called me Betty Howard, which is what I was back then. And she said, the only reason that you are shy is because you are self-centered and selfish, and you are going to get over that, or we do not need you in this school. We will give you a free trip to the train station, and you can go home. Well, that's putting in a nutshell what she said for about two hours. But I think back over what agony that was. It was trauma of the first water. And I was in that school for three years, and there were a good many other times when she had things to say. And I know, as I look back, I thank God for Mrs. DuBose because she did teach me a good many things that I needed to learn. And I thank him that there were times when she really was unjust. How do you respond to injustice? Well, I have a little quotation here, if I can find it. God has all kinds of ways of sanctifying us. And do you think I can find it? No, I can't. But just put it in a nutshell, I think it was St. Francis de Sales, I forget whether it was he or Fenelon, I get them so mixed up because they're so much like, alike. But one of them said, accustom yourself to unreasonableness and injustice. Realize that God sees these things better than you do and permits them. And so I have been learning all my life to accustom myself to unreasonableness and injustice. And thank God for parents who taught us to trust and obey. My father had only one eye as a result of childish disobedience. Do you suppose we heard that story more than once? <laughs> His father had forbidden him to have firecrackers on 4th of July because he said they're dangerous. And so when my father was 12 years old, he got up at 5 o'clock on the morning of the 4th of July, and he got a buddy of his, and they went over to a farm where there was a farmer and asked the farmer to help them ignite some dynamite caps that they had found somewhere. And so the farmer helped them to do that, and of course there was a tremendous explosion, and a piece of copper went into my father's left eye, and that was the end of that eye. Now we children were just tickled to death that we had a father with a glass eye because we could call our friends in and get our father to take his eye out <laughs> without any previous warning. <sighs> he took his eye out every night, put it in a little box in the bathroom. 
But you know, my father was a very godly, very humble man, and I have no doubt that that was one of the great lessons which humbled him. He disobeyed his parents. The God who is in charge, he let this happen in order to teach that man who was going to have a very significant influence in his generation. He was the editor of the only non-denominational Christian magazine in America at that time. Since then, of course, many, many magazines have come out. But he was a man of true simplicity and humility. And he taught us to trust, to trust and obey. The second great lesson is an unreserved commitment. When I was about four years old, a young woman who was on her way to China as a missionary visited our home. I don't remember that very well. I just remember that she was one of the many, many dozens of missionaries that came through our home. I still have my mother's guest book that has 42 countries represented in it. But that lady's name was Betty Scott, and she was on her way to China to marry her fiancé, John Stamm. When I was eight years old, I found out when my father came home with a newspaper that John and Betty Stamm had been captured by Chinese communists, chained together, stripped half-naked, and marched through the streets of a little village in China, and they were both beheaded. You might think that that would deter me from wanting to be a foreign missionary, but I've been reading missionary books all my life and listening to missionary stories, and it didn't deter me. It just made me all the more determined to be a missionary, if God would permit that. When I was 12, I found a prayer that Betty Scott Stamm had written when she was about 18, I was so taken by it and wanted to make it my own prayer that I copied it into the back of my Bible. These are the words, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt, and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. That 18-year-old girl could not possibly have known what the cost would be, but God does know what he's doing, doesn't he? And if Betty Scott Stam and her husband had not been martyred as they were in China in 1934, Thousands of people would never have heard that prayer. Little could Betty have ever imagined that anyone would ever read that prayer. She had just put it down in her own Bible. I think of all the young women who talk to me, write to me, and listen to my program, the young women who are desperately looking for a husband. Well, I tell them for a start, you're not supposed to be looking for a husband. You let the husband look for you. My mother told me two things when I was about 13. She said, never chase boys and always keep them at arm's length. And I tell young women, if you do those two things, you are never going to find yourself pregnant by mistake. And if you guys allow that same, those two things, you are not going to get that terrible phone call someday telling you 
that you're going to be a father by mistake. Numbers 31, 23 says, anything that can withstand a fire must be put through the fire. And in Deuteronomy 13, 3, it says, the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. I would say that probably the greatest test in my life when I was 14 was the things that Mrs. DuBose said to me and the great and very difficult lessons I had to learn. But then the greatest, the next really great test, which was harder, was when I was a senior in college. I longed with all my heart to be a foreign missionary, but I didn't want to be an old maid missionary, as we used to call spinsters in those days. And I was not the kind of girl that guys were interested in in either high school or college. My dates were very few indeed. And so I began to enter into what in college we used to call senior panic, when all the girls realized that if they had not found a husband on this Christian college campus, where were they ever going to find one? And I thought at that time that I was going to Africa as a missionary, and I knew that my chances of ever meeting the right kind of a Christian husband might be greatly reduced. And so I began to do what any girl would do, and I began to pray and ask the Lord if he had a husband for me. It's my experience that God does not give us very many previews of coming attractions. <laughs> God tells us, this is the day that the Lord has made. You rejoice and be glad in this day. Tomorrow is none of your business. God is already there, and the past is gone. Well, I continued to mention this matter every once in a while to the Lord, and I'd say, well, Lord, um, would you just give me a little hint as to whether there might possibly be? And the Lord didn't give me any hints. He kept saying, trust and obey. That's all you need to do, just trust and obey. And that comes from one of the hymns that we sang in our family prayers, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So I began to trust God and found myself to my rather great surprise in one way and dismay in another, finding myself very, very interested in a young man on the same college campus who, as far as I knew, had never looked at me twice. It's a long story. If you really want all the details, the intimate details, you'd have to read my book called Passion and Purity. But just before I graduated, that man, whose name was Jim Elliott, asked me to go for a walk while I almost died. I was so thrilled and surprised. But he confessed his love for me. And then he said, but he said, as far as I knew, God may be asking me to remain single, perhaps for the rest of my life. So there we were, facing a very strange dilemma, it seemed. He had another year of college. He lived in Oregon. I lived in New Jersey. The possibility of his ever, of our ever seeing each other again seemed to be remote. I was graduating. He was not. He was going to South America. I was going to Africa. And Jim said, I am not going to lay a finger on you, because he said, I have no rights over you whatsoever. He said, you belong to Jesus Christ. He said, God knows how to bring us together if God wants to bring us together. 
So he said, you go ahead and go to Africa. He said, I'm going to South America, and we're just going to leave this with the Lord. Well, this was the beginning of a long, difficult discipline. It lasted five and a half years before God did bring us together. But just a week or so before I graduated, we went for a walk one evening, and we wandered without really paying much attention to where we were going. We wandered into a cemetery, and we sat down on a convenient stone slab. <laughs> and I suggested to Jim that if we were serious about leaving the whole thing totally in God's hands and not trying to hold any strings, perhaps we would not be wise in carrying on a correspondence, which he had suggested maybe we could do. Well, it was a long silence after I said that. Obviously, he didn't jump at the suggestion. But then he said, well, you know, Bet, you're right. And he said, the reason I know you're right is because this morning in my Bible reading, the story was about Abraham and Isaac. God asked of Abraham the sacrifice of the most precious thing in his life. He said, you're the most precious thing in my life. And so he said, I put you on the altar this morning. And I just told the Lord that that's where you were going to stay unless he provided some alternative, which, of course, God did do in Abraham's case. It says in Deuteronomy 8, speaking of the children of Israel, he suffered them to be hungry. He made them hungry in order to find out what was in their hearts. And believe me, Jim and I were hungry for each other. But I kept my mother's rule, arm's length. Jim said, I'm not going to touch you, I'm not going to lay a finger on you. I have no rights over you whatsoever. It was an unreserved commitment on the part of both of us to the will of God, no matter how painful and how difficult that might be. Think of those words of Betty Scott Stamps. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost. We can't predict what that cost will be, and it's none of our business to predict. It's our business to learn to know God in such a way today, in the troubles and trials, in the adversities, in the sometimes almost impossible necessity to accept the will of God. It's there that we're going to be sanctified and made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we will never learn to obey unless we learn first to trust. Your children are not going to obey you if they don't trust you. And if you're one of those people who changes your mind, says one thing to the child one time and another another time, lets him get away with this one time and not the next time, you're confusing that poor little child. The third thing that I've had to learn in my life, and these are all lifetime lessons that have to be reviewed again and again, is the learning of making an offering. This morning I talked about making an oblation, just of your ordinary work, the trivial round, the common task, the laundry, the washing, the cleaning of the toilet, whatever it is. Offer it to Jesus. Your broken heart, offer it to Jesus. Your bewilderment. It is material for sacrifice. I would not have anything to sacrifice if God hadn't put something in my hands, which might be something very unwelcome, 
such as the loss of Jim Elliot, which is certainly what I was thinking might happen, never dreaming, of course, that I would lose him in a way that hadn't crossed my mind. But what was the point in Abraham's sacrifice? He relinquished his right to his son. That beloved son, the fruit of his old age, and he put him there on the altar. Our offerings to Jesus Christ may look senseless to other people. You may be called a fanatic of some sort. But I believe that they are received. God receives with loving kindness that which we offer. And a poem by that great missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, was one that, to my astonishment, I found that Jim Elliot had memorized, and so had I, unbeknownst to each other. She said, And shall I pray thee change thy will, my father, until it be according unto mine? But no, Lord, no, that never shall be. Rather, I pray thee, blend my human will with thine. I pray thee, hush the hurrying, eager longing. I pray thee, soothe the pangs of keen desire. See in my quiet places wishes thronging. Forbid them, Lord. Purge, though it be with fire. And work in me to will and do thy pleasure, till all within me, peaceful, reconciled, Carry content, my well-beloved's leisure. At last, at last, even as a weaned child. You mothers who have weaned a child or ten children, you know the great difference it makes between the agonies of the child's learning to be weaned away and then that great calm and independence. Just the difference between night and day, isn't it? Work in me to will and do thy pleasure, till all within me peaceful reconciled. Tarry content, my well-beloved's leisure. At last, at last, even as a weaned child. Number four is acceptance. Acceptance of that which is, humanly speaking, unacceptable. God answered my longing, my great the prayer of my life, that I might be permitted to be a foreign missionary. I went to Ecuador, South America, and that's a long story why I didn't go to Africa. But I went to South America in 1952, sailed from New York, took me 10 days to get to Ecuador, when I got off the boat in Guayaquil, the port city, I looked around and I thought, this is the worst place I've ever been in my life. If I did not know that God had called me to be a missionary and led me here to Ecuador, I'd be on the boat back home. But that was not a negotiable decision. It was absolutely final and given to God. So I went first to the city of Quito, which is the capital city of Ecuador, and of course had to learn the language of the country, which is Spanish. And I was there for six, six months. 
And Jim Elliott was also there. We turned out to be living right across the street from each other. This was all sovereign arrangements of God. We didn't arrange it. And Jim was in Ecuador before I got there, so he went to the eastern jungle, way over on the eastern side of the Andes. For those of you whose geography is as sketchy as mine was when I went to Ecuador, the west coast of South America is directly south of the east coast of North America. And Ecuador has two ranges of mountains, the the two ranges of snow-capped mountains, the Andes, and Jim was working way over in the Amazon jungle to the east of the Andes, the beginnings of the great Amazon basin. And he was working with a tribe of Indians called Quichuas, Q-U-I-C-H-U-A. But I was invited to go to the western jungle to work with two British women on a language which had never been reduced to writing. Both Jim and I had linguistic training and were hoping to reduce unwritten languages to writing so that we could translate the Bible. And so I went to the western jungle and worked with a group called the Colorados. And during that time, God had some other tough lessons. In that very first year as a jungle missionary, I had four major blows to my faith. Of course, my faith was very firmly grounded from as long as I can remember. I cannot remember a time when I didn't love Jesus. But God had a lot of lessons for me to learn. And I had, of course, I had to find somebody who would have the patience and the willingness to sit with this apparently retarded foreigner and teach me his language. The Colorados had an unwritten language. Nobody had ever learned it except one man who spoke Spanish and Colorado. Obviously, the Indians had learned the language, but there were no outsiders as far as we knew. And to my great astonishment and joy, I was led to a man named Macario, who was a Spanish speaker. He was a white man, but he had grown up on an hacienda with Colorado children, so he spoke both languages with equal facility. To my astonishment, he turned out to be a Christian, and he was willing to work for me and be my informant, and we worked very happily together for about six weeks or two months, I've forgotten exactly. When I was in my room one morning, reading my Bible, and the passage was from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4, where he says, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you, as though some strange thing happened. Realize that it comes to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. And while I was reading that, I heard gunshots. There was nothing unusual about gunshots. We lived in a clearing in the jungle. There were about six or eight houses in which white people lived. And the Indians lived scattered around in the jungle. But both the white people and the Indians hunted daily with guns. But these gunshots were followed by screaming, horses galloping, general pandemonium. So I got up off my knees, raced downstairs to see what was going on, and learned that my informant, Don Macario, had just been murdered. As I looked at that corpse with the hole in the head about two inches wide, what do you suppose I asked God? Three-letter word. Why? There is nobody else on the face of this earth that speaks Colorado and Spanish. 
Lord, why did you let this happen? Did you not call me to be a missionary? Did you not direct me to Ecuador? Did you not have those two British women invite me to come down and teach them how to work with this Colorado language? Did you not bring Domacadio to me? Were we not working effectively and happily together? And of course, the answer was yes to all of those things. But here was this corpse. And you know, there are many times in our lives when we cannot see what in the world God is doing. In fact, there seems to be a stunning array of evidence that God's not doing anything. He's not really in charge of anything. And when I looked, stood there and looked at that corpse, and it was as if I was looking into an abyss from which there was no answering echo and no light. But I realized that I had two choices. I either had to believe that God was not God, he was not in charge, things are totally at the mercy of chaos, or he is God, he knows exactly what he's doing, and he's asking me to trust him. I don't see any other choices. There is no middle ground. He either is or is not the Lord of the universe, the controller of all things, the engineer of everything that happens to you and me. And so my choice, of course, was, yes, Lord, I'll keep on. But I had made my life and my work an offering to Jesus Christ, and it appeared to have been a foolish waste. Before that year was over, the second blow came. I had to watch a woman die in childbirth. It was a horrible, horrible experience. She was a non-Christian. She had three husbands, apparently. They were father and two sons that all claimed her as their woman. And then, during that year, to my great thrill, Jim Elliott sent me a cable, asked me to meet him in Quito. I got on my horse. I rode four hours by horseback. Then I rode ten hours by banana truck up to the capital city of Quito. And Jim said, will you marry me? Five and a half, five years had gone by. And he said, I will not marry you until you learn Quechua. Well, I thought that was a stiff uh, condition that had to be added to his proposal, but not too stiff. And I thought it was worth it. And so I accepted the proposal with the condition, which meant that I had to move over to the eastern jungle in order to start my third language ladder, Quechua. And I hadn't been there very long. When I heard my fiancé's voice on the shortwave radio, he was on another station, reporting that the entire station on which he and his friend Pete had been working during that year had just been completely demolished in a flood. And again, that three-letter word rose in my mind. A couple of weeks after that, I received a letter from one of my two British colleagues with the Colorados, informing me that all of my language material had been stolen. This was in the days before Xerox and before tape recorders. There were no copies of anything. A total waste of a whole year's work, apparently. And then I remembered something that an ex-missionary, an older woman, had said in Wheaton College Chapel. 
I hardly remember anything else that anybody else ever said, but I never forgot this. She said, is, if your life is broken when given to Jesus, it may be because pieces will feed a multitude when a loaf would satisfy only a little boy. Our lives have to be broken. Will we accept the will of God, the mysterious, sovereign, never mistaken will of God? Will we say, yes, Lord, I'm all yours. Do anything you want with me. And young people often say to me, but that's so scary. One sweet girl came running up to me and she said, Mrs. Elliott, she said, you know, when I hear you talk about your experiences down there, it really scares me. And I said, well, why? Well, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, it's just, um, well, um, what if he did to me what he did to you? And I said, well, what did he do to me? And I pointed out to her, God has never done anything to me that wasn't for me. My dentist, one time, I said to him, what are you going to do to me next? And he said, not to, for. And I realized that what he was going to do would be for me, not to me. Acceptance means, yes, Lord, my heart receives your direction. I will embrace it as that little Mary who could not possibly know all that the bearing of the Son of God was going to mean to her. What was her response? Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. Be it unto me according to thy word, not mine. Let my soul, like Mary, be thine earthly sanctuary. Almighty God's wisdom and love, I must trust. Well, of course, Jim and I were married, finally, in 1953 in the city of Quito. We, went, we worked together with the Quito Indians for a couple of years. And then he had the opportunity to participate in something called Operation Auca, A-U-C-A, a tribe of Indians that were Stone Age people who wore no clothes, and they killed people. Five American missionaries decided that it was high time that somebody attempted to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people. Everybody that had ever gone in there had never been heard from again, people looking for oil and rubber and gold. But the time came on January the 1st that these five men went into the edge of Alca territory, and Jim was my husband, of course, he was one of those. And Jim had written in his diary, have my blood, Lord. Have it all. Let it be poured out for the life of the world. He had also written, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The five men had a very friendly contact with three Alka Indians, two women, one man. Two days later, they were all speared to death. And, of course, I wanted to say, Lord, why? But he said, trust and obey. I do know what I'm doing. And, of course, ladies and gentlemen, I would not be here on this particular Saturday afternoon talking to you if Jim had not been killed. 
Does God know what he's doing? Trust him. Do what he says. And I'm here to say, you will never be sorry. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.